Hi there, this is Will from the future. Just a quick word to say that whilst we were recording this episode, our workstation had kind of a, um, a let's call it a small explosion, so we don't exactly sound our best. Sorry about that. We are going to get it fixed up. Please do bear with us during these technical problems. Anyway, on with the show. Thanks. This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I am Will, a yellow tomato-looking thing that actually tastes kind of like custard. And I am Leah, green, crisp and sour. Why are we these things this week? Because this week is all about the harvest. It is a harvest festival time and those are our favourite fruits. If you have a favourite fruit, which might also be a yellow tomato-looking thing that tastes of custard, or some other variant of the common Granny Smith apple, do listen out for it. We might be talking about it later. I'd have called a persimmon more orange than yellow. I don't know. Maybe I've just been having them when they're horribly unripe or something. Aren't they like a little bit tropical? Do they get harvested in the autumn? I've just looked at the Wikipedia page, and I couldn't tell you. (laughs) But it is harvest time. The leaves are changing colour. It's time to bring in your cattle from the field to bed down for the winter if you have those. Which you might. I don't know. And if they're not particularly hardy breeds, some of them can, like, just come in at night times. Like teenagers. Yeah. And we have a veritable festival of science information for you, dear listener, starting off with some very aptly information coming to us from the American Society for Horticultural Sciences, based out of Mount Vernon, Washington. Because, of course, if we're talking about the harvest and we're talking about science, what we're going to end up getting into is robots collecting fruit. We've got a couple of those, starting off with the competition between robots and humanity. What are the stakes? The highest stakes of all, dear listener, cider. And apple juice. Which is eventually cider. And a sort of antioxidant that you get in apples that apparently makes cider more interestingly flavoured. We have indulged in some interestingly flavoured cider here in Bristol, where it was Apple Day at Boiling Wells Orchard. Had some very farmy cider. Very farmy indeed. Had to have a very farmy nap afterwards. I wasn't particularly aware of the cider being farmy, so much as uh, mould with aniseed in, which I wouldn't recommend. Maybe it has a weird phenolic profile. We could check in on that with the authors from this paper, Travis Alexander, Thomas Collins and Carol Miles, who have been evaluating... Whether or not different extraction methods, either human or robot-based, can change the phenolic profile, the smell, flavour, the crisp aroma of brown snout speciality side apples. Now, I've never heard of a brown snout apple. They did have a couple of apples at the Apple Day in Boiling Wells, including one that tasted of pineapple. But uh, I don't think I saw brown snout among them. Well, no, because they've mostly got heritage varieties, whereas if they're using brown snout for this, it's presumably one that is widely used, at least in the US. If you're an American cider drinker, let us know what kind of apples you prefer in your ciders. This is a very narrow cast kind of idea, but it's, there's a chance that someone out there will know. Ooh, maybe Sadie from PH Drinking. If anyone should know, it should be her. I was just thinking about the last time we saw an American drinking cider, and she wasn't impressed, because she expected it to be beer, but... The brown snout speciality cider apple is allegedly, according to Alexander, 
desired by cider makers for its relatively high levels of phenolics. But is there a difference in the levels of those phenolics depending how your apples are harvested? So this team set out to test that by planting a row of brown snout apple trees, a couple of rows, something like that, having half of them harvested by hand by human beings and half of them by an over-the-top harvest machine. There's a picture of the over-the-top harvest machine attached to this press release, and it seems like a pretty fearsome bit of kit. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's some serious hardware, but it is cheaper to run than a team of human pickers, and doesn't seem to make much difference to the juice yield, quality, or indeed phenolic level of the apples harvested. So perhaps there'll be some robo-gathered cider making its way to your shore soon. And we keep on rolling with the automation, not for apples in this next story, but heading down to ground level. Looking at the harvest of lettuce, this time a little bit closer to home with the University of Cambridge, doing some research with the help of VeggieBot. I am absolutely delighted with this press release, because they are stressing that the VeggieBot is not in fact very good at picking lettuces. (laughs) It's really nowhere near as good as a human being, but since... Previous attempts at building a lettuce-picking robot have ended with all the lettuces being squished. They feel like they've really achieved something. While the apple pickers may be facing down the grim fate of automation coming for their jobs, the lettuce pickers are safe. For now. Except from, of course, the back pain, sunburn, that kind of thing that you get from picking lettuces all day. Honestly, if it wasn't for the fact that we uh, live in a system that expects you to work for a living, automation would be a godsend. Okay, so if capitalism doesn't get you, the robots might, but not just yet, according to research published in the Journal of Field Robotics. Which I'm choosing to believe is specifically about robots that work in fields. I know that. I know that's not what it is. I want it to be. What other kind of field robotics do you think there are? Like a cyber scythe? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, A Roomba for potatoes? Spud Roomba. There's something there. No, it'd probably work better for carrots or something, wouldn't it? They're a bit more of an expected shape. Maris Piper, but Piper as a verb? Shunk, 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 shunk. (laughs) (laughs) No, what you've described there is a potato gun. Every field is different. And every lettuce is different, says co-author Simon Birrell from Cambridge's Department of Engineering. But if we can make a robot harvester work with iceberg lettuce, we could also make it work with many other crops. Enter the VeggieBot, comprised of two main components, a computer vision system and a cutting system. So there's a camera on the top which takes an image of the lettuce field and identifies all of the lettuces in the image, which just sounds like the worst kind of baked bean jigsaw puzzle differentiation challenge that I can think of, and then assesses each of these lettuces to see if they should or should not be harvested. Maybe they're not mature yet, maybe they've got a disease that could spread to other lettuces. This is all being worked out at lightning speed by VeggieBot. And I feel like I always want to say something like VeggieBot 2000, like it needs that kind of suffix. It's not there yet. By the time it's actually ready for use, we'll have a suffix. Having identified its target lettuces, VeggieBot goes along, adjusts its cutting blade to the appropriate height, separates the lettuce from its roots, and picks it up gently enough that it does not crush the vegetable. 
but firmly enough that it does not drop the vegetable. The tender embrace of the veggie bot. <laughs> Yield to the touch of veggie bot. Oh dear. <laughs> and as you identified earlier, this is not faster than any current human efforts. This doesn't really offer much in the way of an advantage over human lettuce pickers. But these are early days, and co-author Josie Hughes does say at the end, we've still got to speed up Vegabot to the point where it could compete with a human, but we think robots have lots of potential in agritech. Moving on from the more traditional sort of harvest you expect this time of year onto maybe a slightly more abstract version. But in this case, it's a really efficient solar panel. The title is still quite foodie. This one coming to us from Hokkaido University, talking about a golden sandwich. We're not harvesting fruit now. We're not harvesting vegetables. We're harvesting light. The pure, unfiltered power of the sun will be ours to command at 11 times more efficiency than previous methods, according to this paper published in Nature Nanotechnology. That feels very sci-fi, and it's the right kind of journal to put it in, because nature is very highfalutin as journals go, nanotechnology very highfalutin as a science goes, and having a much more efficient solar panel that can capture 85% of visible light, 11 times more than previous panels? Hot damn, you could do a lot with that. That's proper science. The way it works is by sandwiching a semiconductor layer between gold film and a layer of gold nanoparticles that act as a mirror, trapping light in the space between the two gold layers and helping the nanoparticles to absorb light across a wider range of the spectrum. One of the paper authors, Hiroaki Misawa, says, Our photoelectrode successfully created a new condition in which plasmon and visible light trapped in the titanium oxide layer, that photoreceptor you mentioned, strongly interact, allowing light with a broad range of wavelengths to be absorbed by gold nanoparticles. And given how much energy, pardon the pun, has gone into making solar panels in the last couple of decades, and how much public attention is looking towards science for solutions for alternative energy sources, for some clean, efficient, practical energy source, 85% light absorption, 11 times more efficiency, this could be the start of something very big in solar panel technology. The next thing we need is just huge batteries. Yeah, that is kind of the limiting factor, unfortunately. Because where is all that energy going to go? when we don't need to use it, or if it's trying to get it to us to use. Or indeed, for all the energy we need to use while the sun's not on, like, you know, lighting. If only there were some alternative sources of energy that we could harvest. Oh wait! Next story, thank you very much. <laughs> and this one is the one that gets me really excited. It feels like the start of some fantastic solar punk utopia, because a professor at the University of Texas at San Antonio, is set to harvest clean energy from hot pavements. And the way this technology works is by using the differential between the heat of the pavement and the cool soil underneath it, so... that's just... that's going to continue being a thing. That's just been free energy that we've not been using for, like, 150 years. Here's a quick quote from Sana Desuki, who is Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Spaces dominated by pavements are much hotter than green spaces because they absorb heat while green spaces are cooler. By using that natural source of heat, it could actually be aiding the planet. 
reducing the use of fossil fuels for powering grids and taking advantage of renewable energy sources, we are moving towards a cleaner planet. And hell yes, sign me up for golden solar panels and free energy out of the ground in like 10 or 15 years once the work's actually been done to transform it into a practical source of energy that could be deployed worldwide for everyone. But until then, I'm still quite hype. Truly, I'm excited for the day when the urban heat island effect is not just a weird phenomenon. I'm glad the geography in you can like come back out every now and again. Yeah, I feel like my A-level geography teachers are with me. I, I was going to say in spirit, but they're definitely still alive. Um... <laughs> Maybe they're sound their sofa, raking the spirit of geography into you. No, I think maybe I'm just a nerd. Possible. But I mean, if you think of how much of a city is paved, how much of public resources, private resources, are paved over. Places like airports are highlighted in this particular press release. But thinking of roads, the huge amounts of motorways and road building going on around our area in Bristol, how many streets there are, how many new housing developments there are being built, how much energy could be accessed in some way with enough research, with enough forward planning, and I guess with the will to make it happen and not just let all this energy go to waste. The idea of an airport powering itself is pretty cool. Will it offset all of the emissions from the planes? No... Yeah, if you're going to offset plane emissions, you either need to have them all entirely on biofuel, which like is kind of difficult to refine to the point where it's going to be useful to power an aeroplane, or you're going to have to be like planting carbon sinks. Mm. I mean, we should be doing that anyway, but... So we've got all this energy just lying around, waiting for us to get to it. And not just in Texas, but also across the entirety of Europe, according to the University of Sussex, which allegedly has the untapped onshore capacity to meet global energy demand. Lying around and indeed floating around, wafting through the atmosphere in the wind, the University of Sussex, in partnership with the University of Aarhus, have done a spatial analysis of geographical information system-based wind atmospheres and identified around 46% of Europe would be suitable for siting onshore wind farms, which they're not expecting all of that to be used. Some of it has got other things that might be better suited for, but that's a lot of space. How much power could those windmills produce? Well, the equivalent of 52.5 terawatts, or one megawatt for every 16 European citizens. How do these numbers translate into actual practice? Well, that would be enough to power the entire world until 2050, which is not bad for a year's output of wind. And interestingly, the Forestry Trade Show I was at last month had some discussion about using GIS and spatial analysis to identify good places to plant vast quantities of trees, because those are gonna have to be an important part of the strategy for mitigating the effects of climate change. Had quite a few good things about trees. And we're hearing good things about GIS based maps for identifying good places to plant things, be they wind turbines, be they trees, peat bogs. It's a tool we should probably be making more use of. 
Indeed, co-author Benjamin Sovacool, who is Professor of Energy Policy at the University of Sussex, says, This study is not a blueprint for development, but a guide for policymakers, indicating the potential of how much more can be done where the prime opportunities exist. Obviously, we're not saying we should install wind turbines on all the identified sites, but the study does show the huge wind power potential right across Europe which needs to be harnessed if we're to avert climate catastrophe. And one of the other authors from Aarhus University, a Peter Enevoldsen, who is assistant professor in the Centre for Energy Technologies there, does chime in saying, Critics will no doubt argue that naturally intermittent supply of wind makes onshore wind energy unsuitable to meet global demand, but even without accounting for developments in wind turbine technology in the upcoming decades, onshore wind power is the cheapest mature source for renewable energy, and utilising the different wind regions in Europe is key to meeting the demand for a 100% renewable and fully decarbonised energy system. And frankly, no single option is going to be the solution to this problem. It's got to be a mixed approach. So, not a useful argument, lads. Well, between the improved solar panels and the promise of improved wind turbines, which could generate vast amounts of energy across even the dimmer parts of Europe, like us up here in England, and all of the heat trapped under our very feet in the ground itself, then we are just overflowing with alternative sources of energy ripe for the harvest. And we've got one more of those to talk about. As published in Applied Physics Letters, a group of researchers at the Chinese University of Hong Kong have invented something that can power your devices through the movement of your knees. Now this is a change in trying to power things with human activity, because Previous efforts were looking at using piezoelectrics, which kind of powered themselves with the vibration of walking, say. This new device, however, is a smart macrofiber material, which generates energy as it experiences bending, utilizing a crank slider mechanism. I've got a helpful illustration at the top here of the rotary motion, linear motion, and bending motion of different energy-gathering machines. Which, oh boy, does take me back to year nine product design. <laughs> They started us off with creating mechanisms to convert one form of movement into another, and also, for some inexplicable reason, the teacher decided that we had to learn a dance to go with this. Curious and unnecessary. So if I was now an engineer or product designer, it would have been helpful? Not so much for updating databases. So how much power can a human knee generate? Well, it's not on the scale of 52.5 terawatts as the entirety of Europe's wind turbine potential is, more on the line of 1.6 microwatts of energy. It might not sound like much, but that could be enough to power health monitoring equipment or GPS devices, which is going to be very useful for people engaged in outdoor activities. And it's entirely free energy. The prototype only weighs 307 grams, and was tested on human subjects. Researchers compared breathing patterns of participants with and without the device and determined that they weren't using any more energy without it on than they were with it on. So, it's free. It's totally free. Free energy from your knees, from the ground, from the sky. It's all around. This is going to end up like a song that you might have to do a dance to in a design and tech class. I'm just going to leave that one well enough alone. And of course, very handy if you happen to be, you know, climbing mountains or whatever, and you need to keep your GPS on. We're almost at the end of our harvest. We've had a bumper crop of science information. We've got one more, though, taking us back to our 
Foodie Beginnings, from the American Society for Microbiology, which I picked up based purely on the title, but turns out to be a pretty good read as well. So my thanks go to the researchers and author Dr. Benjamin Wolfe, bringing us the thrill of the hunt in Taming the Wild Cheese Fungus. I so enjoy how much of this is just... We left some fungal cultures in dishes for a bit, and they went different. Hey, it worked for Fleming, didn't it? No, he didn't leave his to mature long enough to start domesticating itself, whereas these ones seem to, like, domesticate themselves. The mould cultures in question began as Penicillium commune, which apparently was a bluish wild-type fungus known for spoiling cheese and other foods. And which apparently smells much like a damp basement. Gross. And its domestic cousin, Penicillium camemberti, the mould that makes camembert cheese. Camembert cheese. Wolf does say that they just left some plates around for a bit. Over a very short time, that funky, blue, musty-smelling fungus stopped making toxins, Wolf said. The cultures lost their bluish hue, turned white, and smelled like fresh grass, and began to look like camemberti. That suggested it could really quickly change in some environments. So, having noticed this peculiar thing, the team decided it was time to test their hypothesis, because that's how you do science. They collected fungal samples from a cheese cave in Vermont, which, by the way, <laughs> is where I'm retiring to. I'm going to get myself slowly coated in limestone in a cheese cave in Vermont. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> just disappearing into the hillside. Exactly. You know, like the Witch of Wookie Hole. Don't they have the cheddar caves right around there as well? Yeah, yeah, those also are local to us. Just cheese in holes. Cheddaring relies on a cool place to be, and that's why it was being done in the caves. It's how that goes. Anyway, enough about our local cheese holes. <laughs> This cheese cave in Vermont, where Wolf and his collaborators collected fungal samples from the cave that had been colonised by wild penicillium mould strains, grew them in lab dishes containing cheese curds, some with a single wild mould isolated, some in situations where they would have to compete, and so what happened? Over time, in the dishes where the mould grew alone, its appearance changed. Within a month, of cereal passage, during which mould populations were transferred to new dishes containing cheese curds each time, fresh cheese curds going in, around a third of mould samples began to look more like the camemberti strain of penicillium. Some dishes it grew smooth and white, and others less fuzzy. Apparently in a competitive test case, the wild mould did not evolve as quickly or as noticeably. They did a bunch of analysis to try and find what mutations to the genome were going on to create the effect, and didn't as such find any, which suggests it's an epigenetic change instead. But Wolf was excited about the prospect of intentionally domesticating new wild strains of fungus for new cheeses, new ferments. American molds for American cheeses is really what he's getting at. Well, if you want to tell us all about your cheese holes, whether they be in Cheddar Gorge or somewhere in Vermont, then you can tell us about your local dairy produce by sending us an email 
at EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. Any other comments, do let us know. You can find us on Twitter, at EurekaNerdcast, or on Facebook, forward slash EurekaNerd. If you happen to like what it is that we do, and like all the stories that we've got, then leave us a review on whatever podcast platform that you've got to leave reviews on. It really does help us get the good word out there. And if you really like what we do, then we also accept cash donations through Ko-fi. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Eureka Nerd. Are we ready for those final closing headlines? We are indeed, and these have both been sent in by listeners. The first one, from Phoebe, who has been interested in cheese as well, not just for the cheese mould strains that you can find in various damp and dank locations across the world, but also the most refined cheese cultures possible. What happens when you play cheese? Music. It seems to like it, and hip-hop produces the strongest, fruitiest flavour. This is a story that has been picked up not just in Science Press, but also on SwissInfo.ch, which I believe is just like a repository of information about Switzerland in culture and science, which is fun. Because they were Swiss cheeses. Mm -hmm. But also the humour section of Classical FM, which is just such a goldmine of really niche humour. I love it, you guys. This, because one of the cheeses was being played Mozart, and one of the people tasting the cheeses after the experiment, Chef Benjamin Lazui, said, My favourite cheese was that of Mozart. I like Mozart, but it's not necessarily what I listen to. Maybe a sweet little classical music does good to the cheese. I'm assuming that was translated from French or German. The cadence of it seems weird in English. I'm also kind of distracted by the fact that the cheesemaker involved in this has the appropriate first name of Beet. Full name, Beet Wampfler. And then this next study, which was sent our way by Tracy, is kind of about a harvest if you think about ripping that cotton. That's that's a harvestable thing. Not the kind of cotton that comes out of your bakery. Unless, of course, what you're harvesting is annoyed commuters as you fill their nostrils with bubblegum flavour at 8.30 in the morning. You might remember from our previous episodes about vape explosions, vaping-related illness due to various flavours, and also the Stop Smoking episode about whether or not they were, like, usable as items to help with smoking cessation. Things have gone kind of sideways for vaping, and in the New England Journal of Medicine they are publishing images of vaping-associated lung disease. It's not good, guys. It looks pretty gross. It looks kind of holy. Like Swiss cheese. It all comes back around. That's all from us. So until next time, have a happy Halloween, happy harvest, whatever it is you've got going on at the end of October, or whenever it is that you're listening to this. And we'll see you again soon. But until next time, bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.